you know, Rod Dreher has the book, Live Not By Lies. I honestly think that is one of the most profound things that we can tell our congregations and tell our fellow Christian that you're going to be asked to give voice to things that are false. And the moment that you voice things that are false, your mind has been captured. And that's totalitarian. And we say absolutely no to that. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today, Dr. Stephen Wellham and I will be discussing with Andrew Walker his most recent long form, The Moral Meaning of Loving One's Neighbor. If you haven't read Andrew's piece, you can find it on our website or on the latest podcast. To aid busy readers, we continue to record every long form article so that you can listen on the go. You can also find show notes for this and other interviews on our website. And all month long, Christ Overall is publishing resources that answer this question, how do we love our neighbor? Indeed, as the world fanatically chases love, all the while missing what love is, we decided to take a month to help our readers and listeners think carefully about the subject of love. We know that loving those with different religious and ethical and political opinions has become increasingly difficult, or at least it has been met with more opposition and less applause. This is our modern secular age. And while God's word and his ways do not change, we are challenged to obey the first and greatest commandments to love our God, with love our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. And to help us to do that today, we have Dr. Andrew Walker. Andrew is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and Apologetics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he's also the Associate Dean of the School of Theology and Director for the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. Previously, he served with the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission as a senior fellow in Christian ethics, and he has published widely on a range of subjects including sexual ethics, human dignity, family stability, gender, anthropology, natural law, public theology, and church-state relations. He's written a number of books including God and the Transgender Debate, What Does the Bible Actually Say About Gender Identity, which I just happened to recommend to a pastor yesterday. And when he's not lifting those heavy topics, he's teaching fifth graders at his local church and leading a small group. In the midst of all of that, he has found time to talk to us about the moral meaning of loving one's neighbor. So long story short, Andrew's a solid brother, a good writer, and a good friend. Andrew, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Hey, Dave and Steve, good to be with you. Yeah. Hey, I want to start our conversation uh, with a quotation from a portion near the end of your piece, and uh, I'm going to read it, and as I do so, it kind of models why we're spending a month getting to this idea of loving our neighbor and loving our neighbor rightly. So here it goes. Virtually everyone in our society would praise the concept of loving one's neighbor, but this does not mean that appealing to the principle necessarily results in a correct application of it. If someone wants their pet political project accomplished, all one must do is invoke how the law helps further the love of neighbor. And you mentioned immigration policies and large-scale amnesty programs and kind of write on this and says, but it also is possible to use a good moral principle with imprudence. To love one's neighbor does not in itself provide specific data to deduce specific policy outcomes. So, Andrew, just to kind of lead off with a general question of what you've written here, where do you see people missing the love of neighbor today, and what are you trying to do to correct and clarify in your long form? Sure. So, I mean, I think that the notion of love, that is obviously something that, on the surface, every single person 
has an affinity for, who's against the concept of love. Mm -hmm. And so that means we can appreciate even a non-Christian's like, you know, affinity for the concept of love, but that doesn't mean that we just accept prima facie what the non-Christian believes about love, because love is not something that's just subjectively defined. Mm -hmm. We as Christians would say that love is defined ultimately by what scripture defines love to be. And so love is not this therapeutic catch-all category that someone can appeal to just to have whatever longings or desires or perceptions or pet political projects, as I mentioned in the piece, to be affirmed. You know, I quote Francis Beckwith, who's a friend of mine from Baylor in the piece, and he's exactly right that in our modern day usage of the term love of neighbor or love your neighbor as yourself, it's more or less to use as like a quid pro quo. Mm. Um, so that, and that fits in kind of the, to the expressive individualism, the therapeutic nature of our age, which is we're just kind of wanting to have affirmed whatever it is that is our preference. Uh, and this is not about preference satisfaction. Uh, it's fundamentally about love as scripture defines it and loving our neighbor as our neighbor is an image bearer of God, not yeah. just a Darwinian species who just happened to catch consciousness. No, like we yeah. actually believe they're made in God's image and there are right ways and wrong ways uh, to go about the application of love. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that's why we want to take this entire month to think about this and how your piece is so helpful to kind of define what love is. And just because someone uses the term or even is uh, well-intentioned in trying to do that doesn't mean that they've caught that rightly. And you certainly lead off with that in your piece, thinking about just the logic of uh, loving your neighbor. Um, I'd love for you to just kind of explain to us what is that logic and what is this idea of reciprocity that you talk about? Sure. So, I mean, if we go back and think of moral instruction from our childhood, mm -hmm. It's probably the, the case that you were taught, love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule, right? As I mentioned in the piece, there was a piece of legislation uh, almost, you know, well over a decade ago here in Kentucky that was called the Golden Rule Act. And they were stripping the Golden Rule Act of any kind of overt reference to scripture. But you could tell that they were trying to develop a policy that basically communicated moral norms mm -hmm. inside public schools, I um, mean, it's really fascinating if I can just kind of go down that rabbit trail for yeah. a second. The reason the bill got passed was because it was in response by LGBT activists who were wanting to input sexual orientation, gender identity bills into non-discrimination laws within schools. Hmm. And so the legislators rightly said, well, we shouldn't have all of these distinguishing characteristics on who is who ought to be the recipient of kindness. It ought to apply equally to all persons, regardless of how you identify. And so I think that that principle actually speaks to the universality of it, mm -hmm. that we are to love our neighbor, um, we're to seek our neighbor's good, regardless of whatever distinguishing characteristic they might come to the table with, but we love them again according to Scripture. When I speak about the reciprocity element to this, the reason that this principle, love your neighbor as yourself, makes sense is because we believe that right conduct should be measured against how we would want to be treated ourselves. And so, as I say in the piece, this assumes some baseline moral knowledge that the human person can recognize the conditions that do benefit them, that there are conditions for respect, for kindness, um, for general decency 
that kind of undergird our interactions and society. So that if you step outside and all you can expect is to be clocked across the face when you open your mouth, that's going to lead to a breakdown in trust and relationships in civil society. And I think if you multiply this at the aggregate level, um, the reason that societies can work is because there's a general reciprocal trust that the institutions of society are going to operate at least at some notion of people's interests being protected and respected. I literally talked about this in my class yesterday, <laughs> that um, society hangs together on this bare notion of trust. And where trust is eroded, whether that's in governmental institutions or in mainstream media institutions, you begin to have the collapse of society, which is when you look at dystopic novels or dystopic movies, within a week of like some cataclysmic event, society breaks down because there's no trust that there can be an assurance that people will be treating each other fairly and kindly. And I think there, there's something to be said here, right, though, that all of this has to be measured against an ultimate backdrop, ultimate standard, right? Mm -hmm. That you have to have trust in a standard, but where does that standard come from? And of course, we're going to measure that against scripture. Yeah, I'm wondering, Andrew, as we think of applying this, right? I mean, on, on terms of the bare concept, right? So we want to treat each other with respect. You have to have a society that has reciprocity and so on. But I mean, it's interesting. Again, and you mentioned the, we're going to have to have an ultimate standard by which we evaluate this because, I mean, you know, you've known for years that the first argument that was made for the acceptance of gay lifestyle and then gay marriage and then now transgender is, well, we just want to be treated as right. equal. We want to be loved. We want respect. We want reciprocity and so on. But then, of course, then one has to still have a standard is, well, is gay marriage now a legitimate treatment, a proper treatment of one another and the acceptance of that? Is that a moral norm or is that something that we can't accept and uh, agree with or transgender. I just want to fulfill my identity. I want right. you to fulfill your identity. I want to fulfill my identity. But again, there has to be the application of this with some kind of transcendent moral standard. And, and how do we work that out with a society that yeah. doesn't always agree with our Christian values? I mean, that's really where the rubber meets the road in terms of application. Sure. And it's something that you said that was really fascinating right there. I believe when President Obama came out in support of same-sex marriage in 2012 or 2011, I forget which year, in his interview with the reporter, he actually appealed to like loving your neighbor as the basis for why he would allow for same-sex marriage. Because he literally said, well, you know, we're not going to appeal to some obscure passages in Romans. I would prefer to look at the words of Jesus, to love your neighbor as yourself, which is, again, that kind of licensing principle that it's basically there to just let your neighbor do whatever they want uh, in the interest of tolerance. But as you said, that's not how we operate or think about this as Christians. In the piece, I talk about the fact that love rejoices in the truth. So if we're going to love our neighbor as they ought to be loved, that has to be consistent with a biblical notion of truth. And I, I actually was mentioning this in class yesterday, and I'll, it's relevant here. You know, this means that the most loving thing that you can do, because we are beholden to the standard of Scripture, is to tell things to your neighbor that they may not receive as loving, but is motivated by love 
from, from yourself. So I remember I was in a conversation probably five or six years ago with a very well-known advocate for same-sex marriage. This was at some private convening at, at Center College here in Kentucky. And we were having dinner and this individual was in a so-called same-sex marriage. And he asks me, well, do you, do you think that I'm married? And I said, well, I think that you think that you're married. I think because that, you know, you had a ceremony, you got a wedding certificate from the government that you see your union as a marriage. I don't recognize that union as a marriage because marriage is ultimately the institution of one man and one woman. And so thankfully, this is an individual who's who's not fragile, who actually welcomes free speech and debate. And we had a really, really good discussion off of that. He didn't receive that as, he, I mean, he disagreed with me, of course, but he didn't receive that as hateful. But in that type of moment, you have to really come to grips with, okay, what do you really believe is true? And, and are you going to share that with your neighbor, even if there's the risk that they may not receive it as loving? Because again, the motive, we are to have every conversation with our neighbor, with our interlocutors, from the assumption that we are seeking their interest. Their best interest may not be what they perceive as their best interest. And this is where you have to have scripture. Scripture tells us of that ultimate standard. And, and Steve and I talk a lot about the natural law. I'm a proponent of the natural law. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to have something outside just the natural law itself to appeal to for your ultimate standard. And we have that in scripture. Yeah, brother. So you, there's a lot of good things uh, in there and just thinking through that. And I want to certainly talk about natural law's relationship to, to scripture here. Um, so maybe to kind of parse this into two questions, and Steve, you may have some other things to add here as well. Um, Andrew, in our context, so when we're talking about President Obama and he's referencing the golden rule, he's referencing love, loving others, I think actually Ardell Kennedy and his last piece brings that up as well. And I think Obama even brings up some things related to the sacrifice that Christ made. So there's certainly kind of this history of Christianity that is in the rhetoric. You mentioned Abraham Lincoln, and certainly it was even stronger in the 19th century and certainly in his presidency. But I'm wondering if the arguments that we are making, and certainly this is changing around us, but maybe the question is, how much has the influence of Christianity, even a kind of an American Christendom, informed the way that we have been able to make arguments, that we may continue to make arguments? How much in our own context does that set up either the success or the maybe the, the failure, maybe not the failure, but the, the weakness of a natural law argument that requires us to go back to Scripture? How should we think about our context there? Yeah, so it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a proponent of the natural law, but I'm not a proponent of it on the basis that it's primarily useful for its apologetical purposes with unbelievers. Mm -hmm. I think of the natural law as much more valuable for us as Christians understanding the nature of the moral order itself. Um, so I have a much more kind of internal facing value for the natural law more than necessarily external facing. So, I mean, to answer your question though, I think that our moral ecology in the United States has been overwhelmingly shaped by a Christian moral subculture or more, a Christian moral pretext. And that to the extent that we secularize, we will be unrecognizable from the foundations of what originally gave birth to this country. Uh, and, and listen, honest atheists will actually admit this. There's this incredible quote from Doug Murray, who's an atheist public intellectual in the UK. 
he's this odd conglomeration. He's gay. He's an atheist. But he's also a conservative uh, because he values the institutions of the Church of England for its formative value on civilization. But he doesn't believe any of it, right? Well, he has this, he has this incredible column where he just says to himself, um, atheism has never developed a doctrine of human dignity. Um, so we're faced with three options. Um, atheism can actually uh, go about the process of developing uh, a system of human dignity, um, or we can uh, stare over the abyss and basically acknowledge the fact that nihilism really is where we're where we're headed. Or third, and he literally says, or we can go back to church. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's that's an incredible admission that when you have doctrines or um, political doctrines like the UN Declaration on Human Rights. Uh, there's this, this incredible anecdote. Jacques Maritain was a Catholic philosopher in the early or in the mid 20th century. He was on the, the drafting committee of the UN Declaration. And um, there's this incredible scene where the people come out of the drafting committee room where they literally are writing this thing. And they ask that the reporters ask this committee uh, about what, what did you produce for us? And literally one of the individuals answered with, well, we're in agreement that these rights exist. Just don't ask us why. <laughs> it's an, that's an incredible admission. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so this is one of those moments where you see, I think at least in the West, the, everything is built off the borrowed capital of Christianity. Now, Lewis talks about the Tao, which is his concept of the natural law, which Eastern cultures have their understanding of. I'm, I'm speaking of this more in the Western context in particular. And so I don't know how you have a Western civilization. Atheism doesn't give you the Declaration of Independence. It's just not an atheistic document. Because if it's just atheistic secular materialism, why is there anything to ascribe a value to the person who we are valuing as a rights-bearing individual that we're going to protect their right, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Um, the fact that we're going to protect individuals and secure their rights in order for them to secure certain goals or outcomes that we think are, are good for them, that whole thing assumes a teleology. That assumes a moral order where people have at least some cognizance that we're to live our life with purpose and meaning. Now, again, I don't think the atheist can give a coherent explanation for that. But I think, that, again, there's that at least some moral minimum from the law written on the heart that, that Paul talks about that, that people are going to live inconsistently with. They'll deny the natural law. They'll deny the moral law. But then they're going to end up affirming it at the same time. Yeah, so this raises really some practical challenges, doesn't it, in terms of how we as Christians um, bring our viewpoint into the uh, the public realm. Because, I mean, you're mentioning your conversation with the individual at Center College. I mean, now we have, you said that he was open to free speech. He was open to discussion. But of course, now we have those who would say, um, if you don't accept my lifestyle, whether it's you know, homosexuality or transgender or whatever, um, you are unloving, right? So to love your neighbor uh, ultimately means you must accept who I am. There is no discussion. And uh, if there's no discussion, then you being unloving need to be 
removed or canceled or, you know, whatever. And of course, this is the challenge we're facing. So, so how do we uh, argue? Because we, we do admit that the Western society has been so influenced by Christianity that our whole concept of rights and love and justice and so on comes from the borrowed capital of Christianity. How do we argue to this growing secular opposition to Christianity in the public square and say, this is what love is. This is what loving neighbor is. This is what good is. And they're going to say, well, don't bring your Bible into this. So, so how do we go about doing that as Christians strategically and try to really influence our present culture? I mean, and th- this is not to oversimplify the answer, and, and I'm going to give an applied example of, of how to do this, I think, here in a second. But, you know, I had a, a boss of mine at the Heritage Foundation a decade ago uh, make the statement that silence never wins. And so I think, honestly, Steve, one of the first things we have to do is just actually speak and make the mm-hmm. argument in the face of opposition, which is why I think that um, fortitude or courage is one of the most important virtues to be cultivating right now. I was asked in my class yesterday about the pronoun issue. And what would you do if you were asked to either, um, if you were asked to state your pronoun? And I said, listen, I would be very respectful in my reply, but I would refuse to give my pronoun. I would say to the, you know, in an imagined situation, I would say, you know, uh, with all due respect, I'm going to decline to offer uh, a pronoun. I don't feel like that's befitting my conscience. And then hopefully the conversation just can move on. And again, we can be, as First Peter 3 talks about, uh, gentle and reasonable in, in our speech. And listen, you can be gentle and reasonable and the world still may hate you. And we just have to accept that and recognize that there is a category for persecution in scripture that we may have to accept and live with. And there is blessing to be found in that scripture declares. But at the same time, we should take advantage of the laws and cultural context that we do have. And I do think, Steve, you're exactly right. At the cultural level, we're utterly insane. At the level of the law and jurisprudence, when I'm thinking of the Supreme Court, we actually still have robust speech laws. Now, if you, how you apply that in a private college context may not be so clear these days, but it at least gives us the framework to make the argument um, and to be bold in proclaiming that argument. And so I just think that, you know, speech is one of the best things that we can actually do here. But then I'd also say here as well, that you should never use your speech in service of any falsehood. You know, Rod Dreher has the book, Live Not By Lies. I honestly think that is one of the most profound things that we can tell our congregations and tell our fellow Christian that you're going to be asked to give voice to things that are false. And the moment that you voice things that are false, your mind has been captured. And that's totalitarian. And we say absolutely no to that. But Steve, I think the last part of your question was like, you know, how do we make arguments for the good in the public square? The situation I always give as an example here is, you know, imagine I'm a legislator on the floor of the Senate and there's a bill being debated about the definition of marriage. I kind of view how Christians make arguments the way that we have different golf clubs. So, you know, you have your driver, you have your wedge, you have your putter. And me using a sports analogy is actually a really big deal because I don't know (laughs) sports at all. But, you know, we have different ways to make arguments. And so in that context, I would make what I would say is uh, a natural law argument about, you know, the complementarity of the species, the fittedness of the body. 
I would make a sociological argument that children need moms and dads. I would make a political philosophy argument that political societies need citizens. Citizens come from males and females, so therefore law should recognize that context. But then fourth, because you don't lose your religious liberty when you're a legislator, I would say, hey, those three previous reasons I've given you, I all, I think you could all hypothetically agree with me, um, but let me tell you why I ultimately believe this is the case. That's because God has created marriage. He gave it to us as a creation order institution. And as a Christian, I believe that marriage is not just uh, a generic thing. It's given to us by God because it reflects the highest reality in the cosmos, which is the Christ Church Union. You may not agree with me on the gospel, but I think you can agree with me if you're intellectually honest that the categories of male and female actually exist and something from their union can happen that is unlike any other type of union. So again, that's just one way to, to deploy different type of arguments in the public square. Andrew, I think that's really helpful. I like that uh, metaphor or that illustration with the different uh, golf clubs there. Mine has been far, it's another sport illustration, but far less uh, precise. And that is, you know, everyone thinks that they have a plan going into a fight and if they've been punched in the face, right? I mean, it's the Mike Tyson <laughs> right. quote, right? Uh, so yours is far more precise there, that there are different ways that we should be planning for those different things. But I think to your point about just speaking, in these days, you don't even have to speak. You just have to not put on a jersey. Right. I mean, the hockey right. player for the Philadelphia Flyers made an incredible statement by refusing uh, to, to live by lies, to, to put on something he did not believe in. And we need more of that. And so I've been going through the book of Acts this last week and thinking through the fact that one of the things that we see is that the spirit is poured out on the church, poured out on his people. They speak, and this certainly mm. includes Peter and John and Paul, but also those who are scattered uh, abroad in Asia, and they're pr bringing the gospel with them. They preach, they speak, and they're arrested. Uh, they're opposed because they're going into places where to say that uh, Christ is Lord is to oppose Caesar. Caesar's people do not like that. That They are turning the world upside down, Acts 17 says, and the fact that it's because there's another king that is there. And certainly that's far more of what we're, I think, experiencing today. It's not new for the church, but it may be new for Christians uh, in our day. But the question I want to come to is thinking about those who, uh, I, I appreciate just the way that you can think through a sociological argument or a teleological argument or even a political philosophy, but ultimately coming down to one that says, because God has made marriage. So my question is, and Steve, you can answer this as well, because you have uh, family friends who are in, in D.C. Do we see Christians doing that in the public square? Do we see Christians who are actually making a moral argument from, if not scripture, at least from theological truths that are there? And if not, what would you say to those who have those theological convictions who are Christians, but are maybe holding back from speaking that way? So, I mean, I, it's, it's hard to speak too broadly here. Sure. But I, I'll just be very honest and kind of candid in my assessment of kind of the evangelical moment. Mm -hmm. I think that there's a lot of good happening in many sectors of evangelicalism. Um, I would say right now, if I were just kind of giving a candid assessment of the most perhaps elite institutions of evangelicalism, uh, I don't think that they're speaking as clearly on these issues uh, as they should be. Mm. Um, I think that there is a general reticence. I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that they're cowards, um, but I think that between theological compromise at some of our higher ed institutions, um, a reticence to speak clearly on these issues from some of our elites, or to just avoid them altogether, 
Um, that's really, really tragic. Um, and so on the one hand, I can say, yeah, there's some reason to be discouraged. But then I can also think of examples of, of reasons to be encouraged. So, you know, I, I help with Dr. Moeller in running World Opinions. We are, we are putting columns out there boldly in defense of what I would call the permanent things. Um, and so, you know, I, I know that that's one institution, one platform amongst many, but we should do more of this. And, and if I can just piggyback off something you said as you were setting this question up, and I, this isn't original to me, it, it comes from Dr. Moeller on a, on a panel that he said last week that I've just been wrestling with. He made the statement that, that the truth is attractive and people, people flock to courage. They really, really do. So that, that Pavlov hockey player from the Flyers or Pavarov, I forget his name. Pavlov, Pavlov, yeah. You know, literally the, a week later, all of the jerseys online of his, you can't purchase anymore because people are like, like they're flocking to him as this hero because what did he do? He let his yes be yes and his no be no. He didn't do all of the <clears throat> throat clearing. He didn't do all of the hyper nuancing. You just say yes or no. You know, it's it's like the the Chad meme on Twitter. They just you know the guy who just says yes. I just sometimes I I just love the simple answer. Of, so like so you're saying that two men who think that they're married aren't really married. Yes, they're not married. Next question. Like I can't nuance this mm -hmm. anymore for you. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. I think I think what you're saying, Andrew, is is so important is, is first of all, speaking. And then secondly, it means speaking without lies, right? Giving the truth. So there is your golf club analogy uh, is helpful here, right? I mean, we do have to uh, strategically try to argue our case, but we're always moving it towards the truth of the gospel, the truth of the Christian worldview. You cannot have a foundation for, you know, human dignity, rights, ethics, sexuality, marriage without a Christian view. And this is the problem we're seeing, generally speaking, of course, in our churches is at, at the heart of, of liberalism is, is this attempt to speak to the cultured despisers. But as we speak to the cultured despisers, we compromise the truth of what God's word is. And that's really what I, I think. And I think what you're saying as well is we're seeing this in what we're calling these evangelical elites, not all of them. Uh, what you and Dr. Moeller are doing at World Magazine and so on is crucial. And there's others who are speaking up in the public sphere as well, but not nearly enough where we have to say, no, this is right. This is true. We can appeal to humans because they are made in God's image. We can appeal to the created order because they can't escape it. Even if their conscience are seared, we can still appeal to these things. And God uses this and people do resonate with the truth, even though they're sinners, they need to be regenerated and made new and everything else. But it's our responsibility to call them to faithfulness. And you think in the early church, as they faced the Roman Empire, often the apologetics was this is the Christian view is what will bring good to society. Mm -hmm. This is what will uphold human dignity and so on. And, and we have still many laws in our land that we can appeal to, which is still good. They didn't have that. But we have to be speaking clearly, faithfully, holding the truth. And so the points you're making are really, really crucial in our day. And uh, so we just have to really keep emphasizing this over and over again. And just to add one additional thing to that about just like speaking clearly, because I, I feel like so often when evangelical leaders like get put in 
a place where they could like speak clearly on this issue in a mainstream outlet with like a leading public intellectual, they often don't, or they just kind of like mouth the talking points that like the elites want them to mouth, right? But there are moments where you're just like, yes, this is it. And I, I want to recommend to listeners that they go check out Andrew Sullivan's podcast where he recorded with Carl Truman. Hmm. Um, Carl's become a good friend of mine. And um, he had he had told several of us that uh, Andrew Sullivan, who's this you know leading public intellectual, he's gay. He had reached out to Carl for Carl to come onto his podcast, and so you know Carl was like, "Hey, please pray for me. I, I want to be a good witness." And you know Carl goes on this podcast. It's an hour and a half discussion with a very intense conversational partner like Andrew Sullivan, who, to his credit, is actually civil and can and can engage hard debate, and he's not fragile. He doesn't shut down. He pushes back. Carl pushes back. And it was fruitful discussion. Now, listen, the, the conversation didn't lead to Andrew Sullivan's conversion. But at one point, Carl makes the argument about the conjugality of male and femaleness. And um, Andrew Sullivan says, just blankly, oh, no, I, I, I accept the validity of that argument. That's a very compelling case. I just don't really care, is what he comes back to. <laughs> Which is just kind of his own intellectual dishonesty. We would call that the fruits of the fruits of sin, building into a rationality in our worldview. But all that to say, like you have these moments where you have a leading public intellectual like Carl Truman, who actually goes on a major platform and just speaks the truth. He doesn't nuance. He doesn't throat clear. He just represents the gospel. And I texted him afterwards and I said, Carl, man, listen, I want to show honor to whom honor is due. Like so rarely. Am I proud of how I feel like our evangelical leaders do in the cultural hot seat? And Carl did. Yeah, it's really helpful. I think about even just this and comparing it to the hockey player as well. And it seems as though there's a, a level of vocation as well, right? At one yeah. level, you know, the brother who is a, you know, Russian Orthodox may not be able to, to speak to those things the way that Carl Truman so eloquently could, right. but he can say no, or he can say yes. And those who are gifted in those ways, they're the ones who have been given more, who have a responsibility to do that. And, yep. you know, you mentioned, you know, world opinions and, you know, I mean, speaking as an outsider, you know, there was some cost to that as well for, for that to be stood up as Dr. Mueller took that and thankful for that standing as well. And certainly for more who are continuing to speak with courage. And I think you're right. There is a way in which that draws people to Christ or draws people at least to the truth and wanting to know more about that. I'd love to just kind of, you know, kind of hone in our time here, just thinking through a few more uh, practical ways of just speaking in public. I think this has been a good turn in our conversation. Steve, we we're talking the other day about the way in which some of the older arguments for whether it be the existence of God or just thinking about moral categories. You mentioned an article by George Mavrodis and just how after Darwin, there's just not the ability to make some of those older arguments there. Maybe just kind of introduce that. And we can talk a little bit about that as we try to bring truth into the public. Yeah, I mean, uh, his his argument was that in, in apologetics, uh, we had so much common in terms of a Christian theistic universe and a Christian theistic view. Even if the deists were not Christians, they were still Christian deists, right? They still operated with a similar morality. But after Darwin, that changed quite a bit, right, with a whole different view of reality, humans, teleology, and everything else. And so, you know, he makes the point that our apologetics has to take this into consideration and, and really we're dealing with 
more kind of worldview evaluation. And I, and I wonder, I mean, I think we're picking up some of that here is, is that we can make arguments that will reach people in a kind of common way, appeal to created order, which is really Christian, um, but also if we're going to have to bring a divine revelation in as well. I don't know, Andrew, if you wanted to, to address that, just our context, the whole mindset of our world isn't just like it was in the past, it, it, in a particularly evolutionary universe. I mean, everything, everything changes in that kind of viewpoint and trying to argue with people, we're going to eventually have to bring in theistic assumptions and so on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it was Richard Weaver, his famous book, Ideas Have Consequences, right? And I was listening to recently the Rest is History podcast with Tom Holland and mm-hmm. Dominique such and such, I forget his name. Um, and they were talking about the rise of Nazism uh, in the Third Reich. And it was very fascinating. You know, they said that there was no doubt the case. There was some, there was some latent anti-Semitism um, in Germany. And, and I think, I'm not the historical expert here, but, you know, I, I think some of kind of what Luther said in, with regard to Judaism probably didn't help that conversation much in, in a Germanic context. But there was some dormant anti-Semitism that had been very present in Germany for a long time. But it was so fascinating because you had two non-believers on this history podcast both say that you probably don't get Hitler without Darwin. Hmm. Because they they go on to say that, you know, Darwin changes the game about the meaning of morality, about the meaning of the universe, about the meaning of the human person. And so if, if, if history is merely a dialectic between material forces, economic forces, class interest, and there's no overarching teleology to this, then really conflict is the essence of history, right? And then you could say in a Darwinian worldview, conflict is how progress is made. That's absolute anarchy, right? I mean, you compare that to the world of scripture, Genesis 1 and 2 gives us this canopy vision of of a, of a created order teeming with purpose, teleology, and meaning built into it, that chaos is not sown into the biblical worldview. Chaos happens afterwards, Genesis chapter 3, but obviously the whole storyline of Scripture, we don't just let chaos be the normative platform that the world runs on. We, we believe that there is, there is a, a, a change in epoch that's coming. Uh, and so this just goes to show you if you get stuck defining reality um, according to only one part of the Christian worldview, which is the Genesis 3 worldview, and you make that the totality, you're really going to be off as far as how you assess reality itself. Yeah, it seems that we're going to have to have some real strategies here, right? We're dealing with a context that the whole worldview has shifted, right, with, with, with Darwin, so that we're going to have to make, because, because the Christian view is true, we can appeal to things that are common. We can appeal to created order. We can appeal to, you know, what we can call natural law, but we're going to have to always remember that we're going to have to set it in a larger theistic argument, and we're going to have to continue to press people to say the Christian view is true, and it's also good for you. 
It is what's best for society. It's what has shown itself even in history to bring human flourishing and appeal to these things over and over again. And of course, we're going to also need in that that uh, God will work in common grace and even reviving, you know, his people and seeing the gospel go forward and in hearts changed. I mean, it's not accidental yeah. that in uh, human society that the uh, British society avoided the French Revolution, many will say, due to the evangelical awakening. And mm-hmm. the founding even of this nation uh, was impacted by the Great Awakening and so on. So that, you know, there's the important role of the church, the church to be the church, the church to speak, the church to speak clearly, the spirit church not to compromise, uh, to be involved in the public sphere and making yeah. these arguments and by God's grace, seeing, you know, him work in and through the church to the society. I think it's important to note, like, it's it's the crucible of, like, conflict where often Christian thought can do some of its best work. So that when we're pressed to clarify what we believe on these matters, that we actually can serve both the church and our neighbor. And so right now, you know, it's the anthropological issues that are driving the cultural crisis. And so I think that means right now we have to have thinkers and scholars and preachers and intellectuals doing really, really good work in defense of a Christian anthropological worldview, which will no doubt be received as unpopular in this moment. But I'm thinking, you know, in 500 years from now or 200 years from now, when I think that when this is all burned to the ground, kind of the secular experiment with with tampering with human nature, if if there is something to rise out of the ashes, how's that, how's that for optimism? <laughs> Like, I I think it will have to be Christianity that will be seen as what helped get us out of the mess that we are in right now. It has to be, right? I I don't think Marxism is going to deliver us into the eschaton of a future universe 300 years from now where we're better off than we are right now. It's going to have to be Christianity or it's nothing. I mean, it's it's Christ or it's paganism. It really is those options. Yeah, I think that divide is is helpful. Just to maybe add one more piece to thinking through this, we've talked about, um, I think Tom Holland, his book Dominion, uh, to add one more podcast, uh, there was a discussion between <laughs> Stephen Myers, Doug Murray, and Tom Holland on the yes. Uncommon Knowledge podcast, which is a fascinating discussion. Yep. And I think this argument, or at least this observation, uh, goes to Tom Holland, that it used to be that there was a fear of hell and a fear of judgment that was in the Western world that was motivating people to do good. Even the deists would have a recognition of judgment that was there. Today's judgment has something more to do with Hitler, right? Don't be like Hitler. If you are, you know, bad person, you are like Hitler. And the good thing to do is to be unlike Hitler. And so it seems that there's this moral uh, persuasion or this fear of being, you know, called a racist or called Hitler or, you know, called a bigot or something to that effect. And maybe one of the things that we as Christians need to do is to speak the gospel uh, of the judgment of the Lord that there is a judgment that is coming. And I think even evangelicals, there's been so much message of salvation, and there has been a way that judgment has been proclaimed judgmentally. But judgmentalism and the judgment of God are apples and oranges. They're two different things. And one of the most loving things that we can do is to speak the reality that there is a judgment that is coming. And so even thinking about the conversation that Carl Truman had with uh, Andrew Sullivan, when, you know, at the end of the day, he's like, you know, ultimately, I don't, doesn't care. Well, you'll be made to care. Uh, And being made to care comes in the judgment that the Lord is bringing. And that is part of the gospel that I think has been cut off at times because we want to lead with salvation and only speak of forgiveness, only speak of salvation. But salvation from what? Uh, It's a Mm -hmm. salvation from judgment. And one of the most loving things we can do is to lovingly, with tears in our eyes, bring that message into the form as well. 
Yeah. So for a long time, I've had this really big fascination with the Nuremberg trials. I talk about it all the time in my class because, you know, you have four nations coming together to figure out how do we morally address what just happened with with World War II and, and Nazism. And you, you go and read Robert Jackson's opening address before the International Military Tribunal. And, you know, I don't know of his rel- religious belief system personally, um, but like the whole context of Nuremberg is there's a hunger for satisfaction because there has been offense done against the moral law. And you go and read the Nuremberg transcripts between the horror that was done by the Nazis and then this desire for satisfaction. And you realize that modern man is utterly haunted by the transcendent. And so I see moments like the Nuremberg trials and moments where really irrationality surfaces in our culture, like the trans movement, for example, right now. This causes enough angst in people that we should be leading people towards, I don't want to say like crisis, but like a crisis point as far as the consistency of your own worldview. Like you you tell me you love justice. Okay. Yeah, I agree. We should absolutely love and pursue justice. Tell me, where does your sense of ultimate accountability come from? I I had this interlocutor a few years back. He worked at a very progressive think tank. He was liberal, atheist, gay himself, and he would be on Twitter crowing about social injustice like every single day. And I remember I said to him one time in reply, like, Zach, like, I commend your desire for justice. Tell me, what standard are you operating from? I don't know how to account for your system of justice other than it being a lot of really unpleasant emotional states in your mind. And so I think there is evangelistic opportunity right here to say, like, actually, no, God made you to have that conscience. Um, God is the God of justice. And let me tell you about Christ and about the relationship between the law and the gospel and divine satisfaction. Mm -hmm. Our culture is more ripe for the gospel in its moral anarchy and chaos than I think we give it credit for. Because as far as we are gone as a culture— Um, I don't believe that you can totally blot out the law written on the heart, the law of the conscience. And so sometimes the more we press against it, the more it provides an opportunity to be clear uh, about what Christianity has to offer in that context. Yeah, and what we need then, isn't it, is the church needs to be the church. The church needs to speak clearly without compromise, stop trying to appeal to the culture despisers in love, right? Loving our neighbor is, and you mentioned this in the article, is also speaking the truth. And we cannot separate those two. So when we say we love, but we don't hold the truth before them and the gospel before them, we're not loving them. And our responsibility as the church is to do this and to do so with courage, fearlessly, with love and even tears in our eyes as we look at the culture, but to call people to sanity and to call people to what God has said. So, I mean, that's really the need of the hour is the church to be faithful. Amen. 
Well, brothers, you've offered us a, a lot of helpful things to think through these things, and certainly, Andrew, your piece on just uh, the meaning, the moral meaning of love. I encourage anyone to, to listen to that, and thank you for coming and talking to us about that, and just for your, your labors uh, of writing and ministry at uh, Southern Seminary. It's great to have you on with us today, brother. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you both. Absolutely. And friends, thank you for, uh, for listening to Christ Overall. If you have been intrigued by some of the things we've talked about here, uh, you can check them out in the show notes for this on our website. You can also read a, a whole treasure trove of resources this month that are both written as well as recorded. I encourage you to do that at ChristOverall.com. Uh, if you're interested in keeping up with what is going on at Christ Overall, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter, uh, and we'll be continue to send that out to let you know what is happening here. And if there's interest in supporting the work of Christ Overall, you can also give on the webpage as well. So until next time, let us remember that Christ is Lord of all. And so in all things, let us exalt Christ.